One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today, we're speaking with guest expert Philip Dre. Professor Dre is the author of several books on American cultural and political history, including There is Power in a Union, The Epic Story of Labor in America. He is an adjunct professor in the Journalism and Design Department at Eugene Lang College. Let's hear what he has to say about the Great Railroad Strike of 1877. Hi, Philip. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So I was hoping you could start off by setting the stage for us. How quickly was the the railroad industry growing uh, during the Gilded Age, and what challenges did it present? Well, a uh, very good question. Of course, the growth of the railroad industry after the Civil War was like the major industrial story. As you know, we're, we all think of the 1869 driving of the Golden Spike, uniting the West Coast and the East Coast by rail which when you think of it was a really incredible technological achievement, but the growth in railroads was enormous after the civil war. And it was also the luck where a lot of investment money went. And so it was, if anything, kind of overextended the railroads. There were four or five major lines, the Erie, the B&O, Baltimore and Ohio, the Pennsylvania, uh, and so on. And um, really the problem in a way is that they were sort of like, not just heavyweights, but kind of overweight a bit. Mm. Uh, there were like 70,000 miles of track, um, tens of thousands of rail workers, um, all kinds of money invested in it. And it was the kind of overconfidence in the rail system and all this money 
and government money as well being spent, uh, as well as government land being given for it, uh, that brought about the Panic of 1873, which was a kind of an economic crash uh, similar to what we all went through in 2008 a little bit. Um, and so in a certain way, that set the stage for the 1877 strike to some extent uh, because the railroads then retrenched, uh, they cut wages, they found ways to kind of take advantage of workers by, you know, making the trains twice as long so you only needed one crew working twice as hard, that type of thing. Uh, and of course, they were notorious for you know, in those days, the uh, there was no OSHA, there was no worker protections at all, and working on the railroads was a very dangerous occupation. Uh, if you ever go back and look at microfilm of newspapers from the Gilded Age, every day there are stories of rail workers, you know, run over by trains, yeah. loose limbs. Uh, it was very dangerous work because you had these cars being assembled and being uh, joined and locomotives, uh, you know, spewing coal. And it, it was a very reckless kind of operation in many ways. Uh, and, you know, there actually was a saying that if you, anyone who had been a rail worker for, say, a decade and still had all their fingers was something of an anomaly. It was, that's how dangerous it was. And of course, the railroads took no responsibility. It was, if that, if you, you know, if you lost your livelihood or lost, you know, suffered an injury, uh, it really was kind of on you. It was the uh, era of, you know, what they called liberty of contract meeting, which was a euphemism basically meant you're on your own. Um, you have the liberty to negotiate your own contract and you have the liberty to take care of yourself. Uh, so the relationship between the railroad, big railroads and the workers uh, or was not ideal by any means. Mm. And how long, I, this is a, a, maybe a small question, but we were curious on the podcast, how long was the average railroad worker day? A oh, very good question. Uh, that's a little hard to answer. But of course, the that was an issue at the time in the labor movement, of course. You know, the since the inception of the labor movement, really, which only really got going in sort of the 1840s, um, you know, prior to that, labor unions were viewed as criminal conspiracy. Mm. It was only a very seminal court case in Massachusetts in 1842, Commonwealth versus Hunt, that the you know courts began to recognize that labor unions had the right to stand up to capital, basically. Um, and so, uh, you know, the unions were still kind of forming um, and there really wasn't like a national railroad workers union. Uh, there tended to be very specific kind of rail workers unions, like the locomotive drivers and the conductors or the brakemen. Uh, and many times their, you know, their their efforts were more geared toward like sometimes they were called coffin societies because they basically just took care of widows of rail workers. Mm. But I, but to get back to your question. The uh, the issue of the hours worked was a very much one of the first issues that organized labor took up. First, it was for a 10-hour day. Uh, at the time of the strike we're talking about, 1877, the issue was for an eight-hour day. Um, now, how that played out with the rail workers, exactly, I'm not sure, because obviously rail work goes on around the clock. Mm -hmm. 
it's a 24-7 kind of occupation when you have trains moving in and out of stations and so on. So I'm not sure if it even applied there, but the spirit of it was that, of course, the managing the number of hours anyone would be expected to work was very much a front burner issue uh, in the 1870s. So we talked about the the robber barons, as they were known at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. Who were some of the more famous ones, or maybe I should say the ones adjacent to the uh, railroad industry? Uh, and, and why were they able to get away with what they did? Well, for instance, Jay Gould was one of the big, big ones. Um, there was a man named Scott. Um, I can't remember his first name now. Um, oh, Alexander, uh, Sc- uh, Thomas Alexander Scott, perhaps? Thomas Thomas Scott, that's uh-huh. right. You had, of course, Jay Gould, the big investor, robber baron. Uh, there was a man named Franklin Gowan, uh, who uh, also involved. One of the more nefarious things they did, of course, was that they created a kind of what they called strike insurance. And what they would do is that they would coordinate uh, in an anti-labor move to if one of the railroads decided to cut workers and cut wages, uh, the other railroads would agree to sort of cover them if they experienced uh, strike losses. So in other words, if there was a a profit loss due to a strike, the four existing railroads that were still in business would compensate the one that had gone out on a limb and, and challenged its workers. And then maybe a year later, it would be the turn of another railroad. So as you can see, it was a very handy and sneaky way to keep organized labor in line, sort of like a team effort, basically. And and so that's the kind of thing the workers were up against. Uh, And, you know, beginning in around 1874, there was a huge kind of a rail. uh, Well, I shouldn't say it was huge, but it was localized uh, in Susquehanna um, Junction in Pennsylvania a kind of preamble of the great strike, the great upheaval that is the focus of this podcast, which was a kind of a shutdown of a rail system. And it brought forth a lot of the issues that would be played later. In other words, you know, a local militia was sent in, but then it turned out those boys were really just locals and friends of the workers, and they weren't about to really put down the strike. Uh, And then the question arose is like, well, does the the National Guard come in or do we have the army come in and so on? Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, what is the governor going to do or the sheriff? All these issues would come back uh, during the great upheaval of 1877. Uh, But, you know, it should be said that because of, as I mentioned, the economic downturn of 1873, the mid-1870s were a very dismal time in America. Uh, You know, there was no social safety net to speak of. Uh, you know, things that we're accustomed to from the New Deal, uh, unemployment insurance, um, social security, uh, you know, welfare for, you know, uh, single moms and with, you know, and looking out for children. These things did not exist. And so workers, when they went without work, uh, they were abandoned, basically. And, you know, you had that's when this era of you know, children abandoned on the streets, families sleeping in police stations or on the on you know on the sidewalk, um, and so it was a very dismal time. And in a way, I'm getting ahead of the story a bit, but that's in a way what the Great Upheaval did was that the violence and massive destruction and work stoppage of work and transportation associated with it 
what that really brought to the fore for all Americans was the degradation of the urban uh, urban dwellers. In other words, this was something that was really brought to the fore by the strike, um, and it changed the way America looked at itself, basically. Now, I, I know that there were a series of strikes that happened during the upheaval. Um, who were the first workers to really put down their foot, and how did it, it they go about it? It started in Martinsburg, West Virginia, actually. Um, in fact, they just recently, a few years ago, uh, put a plaque up there about it. Um, started in a specific place as a small rail junction in, in West Virginia. Uh, but of course, even a small rail junction at that time was very important because that's all there was, really. That's how goods and passengers moved around the country. Um, and, you know, the whole genius of a, a railroad strike is that railroads are there at that time, you know, it was ironic because, of course, they were a very proud national network. Uh, at that time, it was a, a huge, a great technological, technological and cultural achievement, even. And so what what was the untold story of that, though, was that workers could bring it all to a halt. Uh, so that's what started in Martinsburg, uh, West Virginia. Um, you know, at first it started with a few workers refusing to move a train. Uh, then the militia came, but they didn't want to do anything. Uh, then I th think there was an incident there where someone someone fired a gun. Maybe someone was shot. Uh, and so it be, soon be, sort of escalated. And before you knew it, uh, the entire the, the entire yard there had shut down and even trains that had managed to come through were being attacked uh, out on the road, basically by, you know, sort of like striker sympathizers with rocks and bricks and such stoning the trains as they passed through. And there was really nothing that any armed force could do about it. Police could do because it was like an uprising of the entire vicinity and citizens Men, women, children, everybody was sort of involved in it. Uh, it was really kind of a labor uprising that involved an entire community. Uh, it then spread to uh, Baltimore, where there were 10, 10 protesters shot down uh, as the army tried to march to, to break a strike at the Baltimore yards. And it just quickly moved around the country. There were several really important flashpoints. One was Pittsburgh, where all hell broke loose, basically. You had um, the strikers were there. You know, one thing about this strike that was amazing was that it was in Kuwait and, and uh, more or less spontaneous. Um, people were sympathizing with the strikers. Other rail workers were going out. And soon it was a national shot. It was the first nationwide strike. and. Of course, it set everybody back on their heels, including, I mean, labor, organized labor was kind of amazed at it themselves. And also, of course, corporate America was chilled by it because they thought, oh, my God, we here we built this impressive rail system. But these rail workers, they're the ones who know how to they know how to stop and start the trains. And and we don't you know, what are we going to do if they all refuse to work? And of course, the government also was like, as ever, you know, this was a story throughout American history is like, where does the government get involved? Mm -hmm. Only when you get to the New Deal, do you have the government sort of setting out limits and restrictions on the relationship between capital and labor? So it was very much a toss up. Um, 
But as I get, as, as I was saying, Pittsburgh was a huge uh, scene of destruction and death. Many people killed by, uh, they brought in uh, National Guard units from Philadelphia. There was this kind of natural antagonism between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. The Pittsburghians hated the Philadelphians, especially when they showed up, you know, to enforce the law. And it, the the Pittsburgh mob basically chased the the soldiers into a building uh, at the Pittsburgh rail yards and set it on fire. Wow. Uh, so the soldiers had to, many of them changed into civilian clothes to try to blend in and ran for their lives. Um, and at the end, the next morning, Pittsburgh woke up and the devastation was immense. I mean, you know, dozens of trains had been, dis- the, the main train station had been destroyed, buildings burned down. Um, you know, the gun shops were all empty. People had armed themselves. So it was total chaos. Uh, and that wasn't even the end because then it moved on to Chicago, where by then the revolution was so uh, much known about. The newspaper headline was just, it is here. Mm. <laughs> and sure enough, there too in Chicago, you know, the strikers revved one another up. They chant, went through the streets chanting Pittsburgh, 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 you know, about the martyred strikers from Pittsburgh. And there, too, in Chicago, there were vicious fights between police, soldiers and strikers. You know, much of it was this kind of medieval hand to hand combat like we saw recently in January 6th in Washington of people just sort of slugging it out, you know, mano a mano. And many people there, too, were killed and Chicago the rail yards in Chicago were perhaps the most important in the country. They're right as that they still, you know, that Chicago famous rail hub. And so this whole experience proved to be, you know, it, it took, you know, a few weeks for the whole thing to sort of calm down again. And again, as I mentioned before, everybody just sort of, it was just, everyone was exhausted by it mm. and from the government, from president Rutherford B. Hayes to the unions. Um, Everyone sort of sat back and thought, Jesus, what the hell? Um, And of course, like I said, it kind of changed the country because that's really where I think you get from the 1877 upheaval. You sort of get the beginning of like what you might call reform Darwinism. In other words, the idea that something had to be done for the urban poor, the workers who had no protections and their families were suffering. And you know, everything from the settlement house movement to other progressive reforms uh, sort of began from that point of this recognition that the country, um, you know, that this kind of every man for himself approach, which, of course, is very American in a way, was not really sustainable. Uh, and that, you know, capital, of course, they were no fools. They saw that this was not going to work for them. They couldn't, you can't just like, stomp on the workers all the time and look to your own bottom line, you have to somehow involve them. You have to recognize them. Uh, and sure enough, you know, the B&O Railroad, which had been the beginning of the strike, they were the first ones to then to create like an employment, employee, employer relationship association. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, you know, of course, you know, because it was run by the company, it was not a union per se, but still, it was a recognition that something had to change and that, um, you know, this was not a way forward. We had to have some way of of addressing these issues. And, of course, you saw that in the next 
several decades in America, efforts by companies and corporations to somehow manage their reunion relations. Uh, Some ways are more nefarious than others, but they understood that it it, it didn't help profits, basically, to have to always deal with labor strife. Uh, and of course, the upheaval of 1877 was like, in a way, the big wake-up call to the whole country mm. that things were different. This is, you know, again, it was the first nationwide strike. Imagine, I guess it would be today, like if all the airlines in America were on strike simultaneously for an extended period of time. I mean, that's even probably not, it, it's hard to imagine for us how important the railroads were right. in their in terms of shipping, you know, there were no like over the road trucks or anything. The railroads shipped everything from meat to clothing to passengers to to wheat to lumber and so on. Um, and when it when you put a cog in that, it just sort of shut everything down. So, and, and one last thing I'll mention, of course, is that these well, there are two things actually. One was, of course, that communities were involved. That's was a thing that very much impressed social reformers that you had everybody involved because everyone saw their interests connected in many ways to these strikers. And so a lot of the mobs, so-called of strikers contained uh, citizens of all ages, men and women alike. Um, and a part, part of that too, I think was that remember that in 1871, there'd been the Paris commune. And one thing that was kind of a big fear at the time in America was that of communists. Mm. This was the beginning of the tainting of American labor reformers as communists, which, of course, we still live with to this very day. I mean, you hear that according to, you know, some of the, 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 the Trumpists, you know, they view liberals as they'll say that they'll say they're con- communists. But, you know, and the, the funny thing was, in places like Chicago, they actually did occasionally bring actual communards from the Paris Commune to Chicago to speak to people. <laughs> and so the 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 right, the conservatives, you know, they they were frightened. They they saw, they thought, oh, these this this, you know, this these workers, they're so restive that this is where this could lead to some sort of communist uprising or so on. So it really put the fear of God in them. Um and also negatively created this stigma, which we again never have gotten rid of, that would persist for years and years, that that worker organized labor was socialist, communist, anarchist, and so on. Um, these are all very familiar uh, yeah. terms. So yeah, it was definitely a turning point in that way. It kind of both it it helped to restructure the labor movement too, because while it radicalized some people, it made other labor reformers think also they were kind of put off by it and they sort of sought a more business what they call the business model of unionization in other words a, a more a more middle of the road approach that was focused more on workers rights and shied away from like alarming rhetoric about class warfare or the kind of bugaboos that they knew frightened capital mm-hmm. uh, you know, so that's where you get like the American Federation of Labor, Samuel Gompers. They're more like, you know, a, a, a sort of a more mainstream union that, again, was focused on their membership cards. And, you know, they weren't as 
not like say the wobblies who came along who were kind of looking for more of a you know world transformation uh, and attaching a lot of social demands and issues to their own on you know worksite demands what can you tell us about the Pinkerton National Detective Agency? Uh, how how did they get involved at the time? The Pinkertons were, I mean, there were a few different detective agencies. It was because I think the uh, those groups of people came to the fore because they were a kind of almost like a paramilitary outfit, uh, and they were very useful because of the government was often hesitant to involve its forces uh, in in these kind of, you know, in labor strife, um, the corporations found it useful to sort of have their own loyal police in a way. Uh, and that could be, and also the those police groups could operate without, they were not really, who was really monitoring them. They weren't really responsible to anybody. Uh, and so you saw them involved. There was. Uh, there was one called Feltz Baldwin. There were the Pinkertons. Um, at one point in the in Pennsylvania, when they fought against the Molly Maguires, the railroad had this group. I think they even called it like the Iron Police or something frightening like that. Mm-hmm. But these were just like, you know, basically, you know, almost thuggish in a way. People who often just went with clubs into the rail yards. Um, you know, sort of like the, you know, the, you know, you've probably seen in movies like the yard, the yard detectives, like people who went through the freight yards, you know, they were tough characters and they sort of asked no questions and just enforced order as they saw it. I mean, in fact, in the Chicago, in the 1877 uh, riots in Chicago, that's who they, that, that was one of the ideas that the authorities had, which was to they to deal with labor, what they consider to be labor thugs or hooligans by just hiring their own hooligans. In other words, they just went out and found a bunch of out of people who were probably in saloons or whatever, tough guys who pugilists, whatever, and paid them and said, go, go clear those, those leftists or whoever they are out of the failure, mm. <laughs> get them, you know. So, and of course, they needed little, little encouragement probably. You know, if you give someone a club and, you know, $25 and tell them to go cr- crack some heads, they were probably more than eager to do it. So those were the kind of things that sometimes the Pinkertons would get involved in. I mean, the Pinkertons were a little more distinguished than others. Mm-hmm. They first became famous for guarding President Lincoln on his trip to to Washington in 1861. Uh, so they had, you know, they had a sort of a mixed record, but in labor disputes, for instance, in Pittsburgh, there was a huge uh, crisis at Carnegie Steel in 1892, where the Pinkertons actually got into a huge Donnybrook with strikers and their families. Um, and the Pinkertons were actually, you know, uh, arrested by the strikers and brutalized and then sort of marched out under some sort of peace agreement. You know, their heads, you know, shamefully hung low sort of because the strikers had really overwhelmed them. Uh, but that was the Pinkertons sent in by Carnegie Steel uh, to, to you know, enforce order, basically. Mm. So they're always, they're throughout labor history, and you find them even 
into the 1930s, what was it called? The Ford Motor. They had something called very a euphemism, the service department, you know, which the service department, I mean, they would service you all right. <laughs> they were, yeah. <laughs> they were, you know, you probably have seen those, you know, some of those infamous scenes of Walter Ruther being bloodied, uh, you know, the battle at the overpass, they call it, uh, where the service department, you know, ganged up on him. And they were, again, they were just like, essentially just people who were otherwise probably would have been hoodlums, but they gave them a salary and paid them to kind of kick ass, basically. And that kind of goes, you know, throughout a lot of labor history, unfortunately. So uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but uh, we like to ask our guests this uh, our guest experts this question at the end of the day if you had to pick a person or thing it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the events that forced the great railroad strike of 1877 who or what would that be uh i would have to say it was the it was the greed and the short-sightedness of the railroad corporations you know i mean at that point you'd think people bright enough to create this national rail network there had been enough labor history already whether it was the lowell mills in massachusetts in the 1830s and 40s the big women's shoe shoemaker strike in lynn mass in 1860 uh, or various other strikes that had occurred on a smaller level they used to call them turnouts in those days before they even used the word strike but in other words what i'm saying is astute business people should have seen that you could not treat a large workforce in this way without, you know, they would withhold payment. They would promise money was coming two weeks from now and so on and so on. Things that were really deplorable. Um, and again, I think they were the ones who, who brought it on. And that's what the upheaval of 1877 really, they're the ones who really learned the lesson, I think. Whether they acted on it as they should necessarily, maybe some of them just dug in deeper. And, you know, a lot of them, you know, it varied. A lot of corporate people never really bought in. They all continued to think, well, these these workers will will treat them however we like, you know, and so on. Others were more flexible and willing to kind of see that maybe middle ground was preferable. So in the terms of who brought it about, I think that, you know, that's part of it, I think, has been. Maybe this is a theme that runs throughout American history, which is that Americans don't like collective organizations of people demanding things, basically. And I think unions, in a way, have always struggled in America, and they do even today. There's just a kind of a sense that, again, that the unions have just never been popular. And I think that was part of the problem then, too. People just resisted the idea of collective representation by workers making demands. Hmm. They just were deaf to it. And of course, in that case, they paid a huge price. Well, Philip, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and helping us understand uh, this part of uh, American history. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. And fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. So awesome to have Philip on the show and mm-hmm. really give us just such a clean and clear explanation of how this all went down, which was a very complicated subject in that it was a lot of events. It wasn't just one event. It wasn't a clean one event. And here we go. It's it's a collective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. We Well, we've had a couple of these um, quote tragedies, which are, you know, we're, what we're really studying are, um, you know, political events or turning points in history and sort of the chaos and confusion or, or, um, you know, business malpractice that led to that. And that, that was this case. And, you know, he did a great job in sort of taking you through not only, um, naming some of the names of these robber barons and how they work together. I thought one of the really interesting things he brought up was the, the railroad uh, tycoons would team up together and back each mm-hmm. other up, and they would they would say, "Look, if uh, your you, if your crew goes on goes on strike, don't worry about it. I got your back. I'll 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 support you." And they provided a support system for each other in that way. That which they is like their own little their union. labor. Yeah, They're like anti-union, but they have their own little like union that right. amongst them to <laughs> right. like, we'll take care of each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. Which I thought was really interesting, and no, I thought it was. It was just fascinating to go through that again. And for me, learning about this over uh, reading about this, I have a harder time. But hearing somebody who's familiar with the subject is always really crystallizes it for me, Mm -hmm. learning-wise. 
it's incredible how uh, we're still we're we're still fighting this fight, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know been over 150 years, right? And I, yeah, I yeah I feel like what's what kind of really st- stuck out to me uh, was him really kind of laying this out this picture of how everyone was involved like it was a whole community thing like mm-hmm. the uprising wasn't just the workers like there was so much sympathy among people in the community and how it would be almost difficult to imagine today something something to that scale mm-hmm. uh, right. because of technology now you know it's like this idea that like the railroad was kind of like it like that's how everything was transported yep. mm-hmm. and it'd be it's like what would it take you know this idea that america at this time was really taking a look at itself holding the nature up to mirrors, we say in the theater <laughs> and like realizing, Oh, there's something wrong here. Like what, is, what would it take today for a strike on that scale to happen? Mm, it's a great really? question. I mean, it would have to be like a, a complete standstill of all transportation, right? right. Air, rail, trucks, uh, trucks for, to, to feel that kind of impact. But you're right with technology and our ability to communicate so easily I, I it wouldn't there well, would still would be, be that like challenge shutting, but still you should be like shutting the internet down sure, yeah sure but then we couldn't organize unless it was on the streets mm. we're so used to our technology I guess it could be like another like I mean the pandemic was in a way it didn't turn into a strike but everything basically kind of shut down right and mm-hmm. it became this like right. moment of what are we going to you know, people, there's definitely consequences economically because of the right. shipping and like, you know, it's different, but I can yeah. imagine something that scale. It has to be worldwide because the world's so global at this point. Right? Yeah. But, but to, to your point, the pandemic did give us a little taste mm. of what it could be like. For instance, we started thinking about food. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how are right. we going to get food from the supermarkets? People panicked, just the yeah. toilet paper toilet paper crisis you know <laughs> um clearly we are not set up for this kind of strike or stop in our society so mm-hmm. that really makes you think about the power uh that 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 this moment in history had the, mm-hmm. the railroad strike yeah and the things that we take for granted today, you yeah. know, he was pointing out that we there was no social safety net of any kind back then. And, mm-hmm. you know, right. like the, no unemployment, no social security, any of that stuff. It's like we and you no, know, there's even fights about that, about how we're going to maintain, you know, funding social security, all that stuff. But we're so used to it now. Like, imagine just not having any of that. And you're like, well, I guess we're just like going to the police station to sleep tonight with the kids. Like, that seems mm-hmm. so insane. Crazy. I mean, the or yeah, he was talking about the um, or orphan children in the streets just not being able to you know there were no there was no public health. Right. Um, but, but, to me, something that struck me as very interesting is how long the the fear of communism mm-hmm. has has really prevailed in American history. Uh, I, it's just fascinating to me because as someone who has been directly affected by actual communism, right? Because my family <laughs> fled Cuba, uh, it, you know, after Castro took over. I 
it's like I know that's I'm not afraid of communism because what people talk about communism is not actual communism. Like communism is a very specific thing. And the fact that that term just gets thrown around without an understanding of what it is, is Mm -hmm. uh, really harmful and a very good scare tactic. Mm -hmm. We love ruling by fear. Yeah. Rule by <laughs> ruling by fear. Just put the fear of anything in people, and they'll get in line. People must must people get so scared when they get their social security checks. They're like, "Oh my god, this is such scary communism!" <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Terrifying. get it away! They get like a few hundred dollars That's in the right. mail. They're like, ah! "That's it." Um. So fascinating. Just just uh to talk to to Philip. Uh, he said that he would blame, blame greed yeah. and a short-sightedness, right? Of the railroad, of the railroad corporations, mm-hmm. right? Specifically, short-sightedness makes a lot of sense to and greed, obviously. But um, yeah, this the, the, there is this when it comes down to these corporations and their fear of wanting to negotiate with labor, organized labor. It does come down to just uh, you know quarterly profits, and yeah. you know mm-hmm. it's it's just like they don't they're not thinking long term here. You're not going to have a labor force, mm-hmm. you know, right? You kind um, of both need each other, you know. Mm-hmm. Like why not work together? So what what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail for this episode? We threw the robber barons in jail, mm-hmm. and we gave the big slap specifically to Thomas Scott. That was where we landed. I feel like we had, we almost sent the railroad tycoons to the alarmist jail. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. But we we kind of backpedaled and thought it was a big, we went a little bit more macro. Yeah. It was like more of the the collective of robber barons. But now I'm thinking. I mean, we had one of our options on here was poor wages and greedy bosses, for example. So, and like the railroad tycoons, (laughs) like we definitely had, we're circling these concepts here's what i think i i loved what philip said and i think we should send short-sightedness to the alarmist jail wow because if we could i i just think that's such a big problem especially like you you both were saying when it comes to workers and a corporation everyone needs each other and Mm -hmm. To be so short-sighted that you just count profit over quality of life and quality of uh, business uh, ethics, ethics, yeah, Morals, morality, and and like he said, and when when uh, Philip was speaking, they knew this before. There were other labor strikes or gatherings before. Right, they sh- they 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 should have known better. They should have known. Basically, it's like you're you're putting your greed. Over, you know, your actual knowledge of what is possible mm-hmm. if you don't do the right thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think I'm going to call it. Okay. Short-sightedness. You're going to the alarmist jail. Hmm. And I guess what? We're, we're still slapping Thomas Scott, but really we should be slapping all of the railroad tycoons. <laughs> right? If we could get uh, a round of slaps... <laughs> For all of the railroad tycoons, that would be awesome. Great. Thank you, Molly, our editor. <laughs> Round of slaps coming right up. 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. So, uh, thanks so much uh, to Philip, and uh, this was really fun talking uh, to him about this topic. And stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing the Sewol South Korean ferry disaster. Powered by ACAST.